0: The healthcare system is broken, but it doesn't have to be. This is Revenue Cycle Optimized by Infinex Healthcare. We discuss the latest challenges in the revenue cycle space and provide actionable tips on how to overcome them at your organization. Hi, and welcome to Infinex's Office Hours. I'm David Bird, and we'll be hosting this episode today with my guest and previous coworker at Zyphon. Clarissa Blattner, Senior Director of Revenue and Payer Optimization. And we'll be discussing the challenges with prior authorization in the lab market and how it affects reimbursement, which is a big challenge. So Clarissa, thanks for being here and special thanks to our audience for today's session. I have a series of questions that we want to address today and time permitting at the end of this session, we'll open it up for the audience for, for your questions. So Clarissa, thanks again for. Joining us today, but before we dive into the meat of today's topic, it would be great if you could provide the audience with an overview of what your role entails as Senior Director of Revenue and Payer Optimization at Dyson.
1: Thank you very much for having me, David. I'm actually really excited to join you for the session of office hours. So actually, prior to joining Siphon, I had the opportunity to work at three different labs within their client services department and also their billing and reimbursement departments. I've been with Siphon for about nine years now. When I first joined Siphon, I managed our outsourced billing department, which serviced 45 diagnostic providers with the day-to-day revenue cycle management operations. Since Since then, I've actually had the opportunity to support our sales team through demos and assisting our implementations team on system integration and setup. I don't blame you for asking me to provide insight into my role. You don't often see someone with a title like mine. But in my current role, I actually work with new and existing customers of Zyphon in a consultative manner, and I specialize in payer coverage, reimbursement, business strategies, and focusing on achieving operational efficiencies and maximizing revenue. And I actually also work as an advocate to help them navigate the complexities of the healthcare revenue landscape.
0: So there's a, lots of things in that title that you just unpacked. <laughs> You're Absolutely. a very busy person. <laughs> so for for those that may not be familiar with Zyphon, can you provide a little bit of corporate history and, and what Zyphon is doing today? I know Zyphon has expanded into many different market segments and provides a lot of different offerings today than than when I was there and just three or five years ago looking back. So if you could just inform the audience a little bit about Zyphon, I think that would be helpful and then we'll start to get into some of these prior authorization questions.
1: Yes, absolutely. So Xyfin is a healthcare information technology and services company. It was actually founded in 1997 by Diagnostic Executives. It's headquartered in beautiful San Diego, California, and we actually empower healthcare organizations to navigate an increasingly complex and evolving landscape through innovative technologies and expert services. So we have our revenue cycle management platform, our laboratory information systems, and then we also have a clinical data site as well. So what we try to do is we try to deliver improved financial performance, operational efficiencies, and interoperability and simplicity. And our solutions enable organizations to achieve stronger finances, streamline operations, and develop industry-leading business strategies. So we first started off in the laboratory industry. We actually branched off into medical devices, independent diagnostic testing facilities. We actually are now in the pharmacy space and radiology space, and we've actually introduced a few of our offerings to multi-specialty physician medical practices as well.
0: That's a great background, and you're absolutely right. Beautiful San Diego. It's a beautiful facility there. But I think, I think now that the expansion has gone on, I mean, some of their original founders, Lila's still there. Mike Coates is still there. Jeff Yates, it, it's you've been there nine years, so it speaks a lot to. The culture at Zyphen and what Zyphen has to offer, but you've also expanded in offices in Texas and Utah, right?
1: Yes, correct. Yes.
0: Yeah, good, good growth. All right, let's let's jump into this. So overall, what are some of the biggest challenges that labs face with with prior authorization that you're seeing today?
1: So I think all providers, not just the lab industry, are impacted by the complexities and evolving payer landscape. So prior authorization itself has been a hot topic for years. However, with the new technology and tests being developed, we've seen more and more providers and patients being affected by prior authorization process and requirements. But this issue, again, doesn't just affect labs. It affects all providers nationwide. I actually wanted to point out there was an American Medical Association physician survey that was actually performed last year, and the results were actually published December of 2022 as it pertains to prior authorization. And the results were actually very eye-opening. There were about a little over 1,000 physicians surveyed, of which 40% of those were primary care physicians, and then 60 were actually specialists. And 94% reported that the prior authorization process delayed access to necessary care for patients. And then an overwhelming 80% also reported that the process led to patients abandoning their recommended course of treatment. So in recent years, there's been a push for reform on a federal level, state level, and also a payer level. So I'll start with the federal level, and what the um, federal level is, is so they approved and signed Improving Seniors' Timely Access to Care Act of 2021, and this was passed in September of last year. And what this bill does is it's really specific to Medicare Advantage plans, and it establishes electronic prior authorization processes that would streamline the process. It would create real-time decisions for certain services that are routinely approved. And it establishes a national standard for clinical documentation that would reduce administrative burdens and encourage the Medicare Advantage plans to adopt policies that adhere to evidence-based guidelines. So that's on the federal level. On the state level, however, many states have adopted or are trying to pass legislation through what they consider a gold card program. And what that is, is it exempts physicians from prior authorization requirements if 90% of the physician's requests were approved in the preceding 12 months. And then, again, I did say some payers are looking at reforms as well. So just recently, United Healthcare announced they would plan to cut prior authorization usage by 20%, as well as automate and expedite the prior authorization process. And so what it equates to is they would reduce to about 10 to 10 million prior authorization requests annually. But as I look at these types of reforms, you know, I see that there's great efforts to improve access to care and prior authorization process. but this doesn't automatically translate to more revenue from my perspective. So payers may not implement these changes in their systems. And no one's monitoring it from the federal government or the state governments, right? And, of course, with a payer, on a payer-level reform, it's the payers that would be monitoring it themselves. So, you know, there's no one to actually ensure that the payers are being compliant with these updates. And... Even though there's going to be some relief on the front end, because they are not requiring prior authorizations, maybe on the front end, I do see that it'll be an increased demand on the back end, so on back end resources when it comes to denials. so it's important for our labs and providers to understand that again even with a lot of this reform it does look good on paper however they really do need to monitor both the front end practices from the prior authorization perspective as well as the back end practice as well because again i i kind of feel that you'll see more denials either for prior authorization, even though there's these reforms that have been implemented, but then also different types of denials on the back end as well.
0: Yeah, those are some really good statistics. And to your point, it's kind of like the fox guarding the hen house. We see a lot of the things that that you just mentioned. One of the things that I wanted to note is what we call patient abandonment, and you you touched on it, right? When that patient gets frustrated with a facility because they can't get that visit or that test or procedure performed because that facility hasn't received the authorization. So therefore, the patient abandons that treatment and or will go to a different facility because they've had a better patient experience there. So It hits on patient satisfaction, but it also hits on loss of reimbursement for that facility because those patients are abandoning that procedure or or test. All great points.
1: Yeah. And actually, I can also share with you kind of personal experience as well. So back in March of this year, I was diagnosed with wet, wet AMD so age-related macular degeneration. And my ophthalmologist actually requested prior authorization for Lucentis, which is an eye injection, so that it would stop the progression of my AMD. Unfortunately, I actually received a denial for that prior authorization, and my medical group actually requested that I have a low-cost alternative. And because of the fact that I'm in this industry, I deal with prior authorization day in and day out. I actually made it a point to advocate for myself. And so I then contacted my medical group to try and push my prior authorization for Lucentis, which was successful. So I do see more and more providers actually educating their patients, whether it's on the prior authorization process and or the denials process, to advocate for themselves. I can't guarantee that it's successful for everybody, but you will see a lot more patients being more involved in their health care.
0: That's a good point. One, one point taken, which I've known because we've worked together in past lives, you don't mess with Clarissa. So... <laughs> 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 So, so let's kind of ex- expand on that, because there are tons of challenges addressing prior authorization, and, and one of the challenges faced is, is contracting with a payer for specific a specific test or specific test. For those not familiar, and, and Clarissa, keep me honest here, because you know this probably way better than I do, but payers determine in-network or out-of-network statuses for lab tests based upon whether that lab has a contract with the payer for that test or test. If the lab does have a contract, it's considered in-network and the payer will typically pay a higher percentage of the cost for that test. In comparison, if the lab doesn't have a contract, it's considered out-of-network and the patient could be responsible for a higher percentage of the cost for the test.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: think I got that right.
1: You did. <laughs> Can you, all right, cool.
0: Can you provide some insights on what a lab has to go through to get in network, an in-network contract from a payer?
1: Sure. So uh, so I feel it's been really, really difficult for labs to contract as an in-network provider these days. Many of the major payers actually have created preferred lab networks. So there are select few labs within different lab specialties that have gone through a rigorous application review process with these payers to be part of that network. These preferred labs actually have agreements in place with the payer and it establishes the network to offer their services to patients and at negotiated rates, like you said. And there's specific terms involved as well, which will typically result in cost savings for both the patient and the payer. But to answer your question, David, labs should first research and identify health plans that are operating in their region or the market they are looking to target They do need to ensure that they meet regulatory requirements, such as local, state, and federal guidelines, which would include having a CLIA license, right? Right. And each plan may have specific criteria for network participation. So they need to ensure that they meet all of those requirements as well. So all contracts are to become a a network. All payers require an application to be completed, which... Includes details regarding the lab services, capacity, quality control, pricing, and much, much more. There are credentialing requirements as well, which may include verification of the lab personnel's credentials and qualifications too. But also note, and I want to emphasize this, that many payers have closed their networks to new providers. So that's one additional hurdle that providers may face these days as well.
0: Got it. So it's not so easy, is what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. All that to say, <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> so,
0: so then, tell me this: if if a test is in network, it can require a prior authorization, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah. So, so payers often have prior authorization requirements regardless of network status. So even in network providers may have to request prior authorizations before rendering services. Usually when you are negotiating or trying to go into contracting with a payer, there will be stipulations in that contract whether or not prior authorization is required. The good thing about having a contract with a payer is within the language of that contract it will actually stipulate what the turnaround time is for the actual turnaround time for prior authorization to be approved or denied so i I guess that's kind of one benefit to being contracted with a payer so
0: on that same stream i've seen payers that will allow a test to come through but they're out of network and they uh-huh. don't require an off. Why is that? Do you know?
1: So I know that lately, some of the major payers, the bigger payers, actually have specific lists that list all of the procedures and tests that require prior authorization. If the the test does not fall within that, it not that doesn't mean that it's going to be you know approved and or paid up front, you may end up getting a back-end denial, whether it's for additional clinical information, maybe it's stating that the test is not covered, or possibly that it lacks medical necessity. So although there is no requirement on the front end for prior authorization for certain tests, you may end up seeing that the payer is going to request additional medical records to justify medical necessity, and or require, you know, more information so that they can understand exactly what the test is, why it was performed, and then also sometimes they ask for, you know, as a result of the test, did the patient management or treatment plan change? So yeah,
0: got it, good answer, thank you. One thing that I think I've I've noticed after being in healthcare as long as I have been and we're not gonna go into defining how long I've been in this field. (laughs) So labs have a, a unique relationship with ordering physicians, more so than I think in some of the other specialties. I mean, all the other specialties have a relationship with a referring or, or ordering physician, but it seems to be a little bit more unique within lab. How does the ordering physician impact the authorization process, and, and what steps do labs like take to, to assist in working with an ordering phi to, to obtain that
1: author? So David, that's a great question you bring up. So most reference and specialty labs don't have a patient service center. It's those bigger ones that do. And so therefore, they don't have that face-to-face interaction with the patient, The ordering physician usually would order the test to be performed based on the patient's diagnosis and sends the specimen to the lab. So no patient interaction at all, right? Most payers actually require that the ordering physician is the one that's requesting that prior authorization rather than the lab. And that's probably because the ordering physician has that relationship with the patient and has the patient's clinical history. So in a perfect world, uh, the ordering physician should request the prior authorization for the test that's being requested and performed and specimen sent to the lab. Unfortunately, that very rarely happens since the ordering physicians are really, really more focused on patient care and management, which they should be, that should be their main priority. And it Absolutely. shouldn't be a burden on them or you know a burden with administrative challenges. So. I think it's important for our labs to, one, just educate the ordering physicians because, again, this is a requirement for a lot of like molecular genetic tests and so forth. And so it is a requirement for most of the payers to have prior authorizations for certain tests. And so being able to collaborate with that ordering physician and trying to work out some type of system and or, you know, just even being able to get those medical records ahead of time if the labs actually need to request a retro authorization. So it is definitely a partnership. Labs can't do it without the ordering physician. And likewise, you know, because of the fact that the ordering physician is requesting this these tests in order to establish care for the patient, it is kind of a you know bidirectional relationship where we depend on each other to get that prior authorization.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing that I've always scratched my head about. The ordering physician in lab, or what we refer to in other specialties as the referring physician, mm-hmm. they're the one that has to initiate the auth but that off number goes on the rendering facility or the rendering physician's claims so they can get paid. It's kind yep. of backwards. It's always made my, it's me scratch my head, but that's the games that the payers play. <laughs> um, <laughs> if it's not um, one
1: thing, it's another.
0: <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So getting back to like specifics around off, there, there's different statuses with authorizations. There's a stat authorization, which means, hey, I need to initiate this stat ASAP for, for some specific reason. Uh-huh. There's a status called same day where we, got, we know that this patient's going to be coming in or, or this specimen is going to be coming in. There's normal, which everybody's probably still familiar with. It's the normal process that you go through that you have to jump through all kinds of hoops. But in lab, there is a high, high percentages of retro auth. Yes. Can you kind of walk the audience through what a retro auth is and how it can impact the lab's reimbursement?
1: Sure, so a retro authorization is actually granted by the payer after a service or test has already been completed. So usually, if an ordering physician hasn't requested that prior authorization upfront before the test has been performed, it's the responsibility of the lab to request and collaborate with the ordering physician to request that retro authorization. So what usually happens is, ordering physician will um, send that specimen to the lab. Um, hasn't requested authorization. The lab usually does not hold the specimens because of patient care, they want to make sure that they're caring for the patient, it's medically necessary, they want to ensure that they perform the test in a timely manner. So they'll go ahead and perform the test accordingly and it's up to the lab or, you know, the revenue cycle management team or what have you to request that authorization. So the authorization that's requested after the test has been performed rather than prior to the test being performed.
0: Got it. So it it kind of touches on my next question and you, you kind of answered some of it, but when you look at the lab market, I mean, labs provide so many tests. If you actually Google it, how many tests are performed, you know, in the market, it identifies an insane number of 7 billion clinical lab tests are performed annually. Mm -hmm. In a manual prior authorization environment, how long does it typically take to get a prior authorization approved? and, And the and does it depend on the type of test that affects the turnaround time? And I think you just touched on it. They need to get the specimen processed because of the expiration date. And before you were talking about patient abandonment and, you know, patient satisfaction and patient care. Uh-huh. So what types of turnaround times do you see? And, and and can you kind of touch on if it's different by lab type or of test?
1: Sure. So. I would say that the main types of labs are clinical labs, genetic molecular labs, pathology and toxicology labs, just to name a few. So genetic and molecular tests, as well as ADLTs, which is advanced diagnostic laboratory tests and pharmacology. Pharmacogenomic tests usually require prior authorizations. Tests that are new to the market are often considered experimental and investigational since there hasn't been clinical evidence to support its use, would also require prior authorization. I would say that as far as turnaround time, from a lab perspective, we are looking at about eight days turnaround time to get a uh, prior authorization approved, but also keep in mind, so I, I referred to the AMA physician survey earlier during the session, but what I wanted to also point out, and just so that you get perspective, is that with that AMA survey, it was reported that 42% of providers still use the manual process for requesting prior authorization. So that's pretty significant. You know, even in the days of technology, we still have providers either making phone calls to contact the payers to obtain or initiate prior authorization. You still have faxing back and forth from the providers to the payers as well. So although more than 50 percent are utilizing EHR or maybe it's a a platform for prior authorization, or even the payer's portal. There's still a significant amount of providers that are using that manual process, which is really interesting.
0: Amazing! I, I didn't realize it was high, that high. That's a that's a great stat. Obviously, the, the audience is paying attention to the to the time because we we got an audience question. So, having said that, there's three minutes left. I'll open it up to the audience if there's any other questions, but this comes from someone in the audience that says, from what you see in your customer base and overall in the market, what steps are labs taking to address the overall challenges when it comes to prior authorization?"
1: So I think first and foremost is really understanding the payer requirements, right? So like I mentioned prior, there's a lot of payers that publish the list that of tests or services that require prior authorization. So that's very much very useful for the lab industry as well as all providers, but also having the capabilities with their revenue cycle management platform to be able to identify the payers that require prior authorizations on the front end and for what tests, and also having automation in place so that there's a more seamless and more efficient process. You know, unfortunately, it's not that easy. I think it's important to have that collaboration with your ordering physician too, because they play an important role in that as well. But then also, you know, you you did touch on the fact that the process itself actually impacts the patient, too, and patient satisfaction. So even having that relationship with the patient, I know a lot of the labs also send out patient notifications just introducing themselves so that they know or the patient knows that they're in good hands. You may not know that we actually received your specimens. However, this is what we're doing. This is the test we're performing. And they also try to educate the patients on the process so that it's no surprise for the patient also. Well,
0: Clarissa, we are out of time, unfortunately, but I now understand why your title is what it is. You are a wealth (laughs) of knowledge. Those Thank are, you, David. The information, you're welcome. The, the information that you've provided is extremely val- valuable. And, and all, as always, it's been a pleasure. And again, thanks for your insights and, and joining us for this week's Office Hour. We really appreciate it. And thanks to our audience. I hope this has been informative. And until next time, have a great day. Thank you, Clarissa. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to get notified when our next episode is online. For more information for how we can help you increase reimbursements at your company, check out our website at infinex.com. That's I-N-F-I-N-X dot